Welcome to Idlewild Cottage, a quiet place where kindred spirits can linger together over a cup of tea, savoring all things lovely and cozy. My name is Juliana, and I'm delighted to have you. Each episode here at the cottage will center around a theme. That theme will be celebrated in a number of ways, through literature, art, nature, and even some favorite movie scenes, we'll cherish the sweet and simple things of life. So make yourself at home, and I'll put the kettle on. By the time the harvest moon, as yellow as saffron, rose over the dark skyline of the eastern horizon, there was the smell of autumn on the wind. When the breeze veered to the south, the smell of it blew over the ranch. There were different flowers in the dells and along the streams, no longer the pink and blue and white of spring and early summer, larkspur and delphinium and bluebells. Instead, feathery goldenrod, black-eyed Susans, asters, everything gold and purple now for the fall. And so Mary O'Hara sets the stage for our time together today here at Idlewild Cottage. Her 1941 novel, My Friend Flicka, sweeps us into the heartaches and joys of ranch life. This excerpt is one of many that paints vivid, stirring images of young Ken McLaughlin's surroundings as he yearns for his little colt, Flicka. This yearning is a common one in young and old alike and will guide our literary and cinematic wanderings today as we celebrate that beautiful animal, the horse. When I was about 10 years old, our home was adjacent to a large open field. It belonged to our neighbors, but no matter, to my young eyes, it was an expanse ideally situated to serve as a horse pasture. Accordingly, I begged my parents for a horse, truly believing it would be quite logical to simply store one in the neighbor's field. I could just envision myself riding across the sere grasses, my long brown hair carried on the autumn breeze. Alas, that dream never did materialize. But years later, when I read National Velvet, the 1935 book by Enid Bagnold, I understood exactly how Velvet Brown felt when dreaming of her own horse. As the girls ate their supper, a private dream floated in Velvet's mind. It was a little horse, slender and perfect, rising divinely at a jump, four feet tucked up neatly, intelligence and delight in its eager eye, and on its back, glued lightly and easily to the saddle, she, Velvet. Later, in bed for the night, Velvet acts out her dream, a scene which is charmingly portrayed by a young Elizabeth Taylor in the 1944 film by the same name. Velvet was driving her big toes with long pieces of tape. She lay on her back in bed, her knees bent, talking in a monotonous voice like a sleepwalker. Careful through the gate now, mind now, get on, Satin and she gave the side of her thigh a switch with a light twig she held in her hand. The long tapes ran through her fingers, which she held on her stomach, and both her knees pranced up and down, a restive pair of well-matched chestnuts. 
I encourage you to read this stirring classic to see how Velvet Brown's dreams become reality. I will note that though this book may initially appear to be geared toward children, it does have some mature themes and mild language. This is also true for My Friend Flicka and the other books in O'Hara's trilogy. Now, a set of stories I can recommend for all ages is the 1936 Billy and Blaze series by Clarence William Anderson. These sweet picture books with pencil drawings by the author are everything a horse-loving child would enjoy. Billy was a little boy who loved horses more than anything else in the world. Whenever he had a chance to ride some farmer's horse, he used to pretend that it was a prancing pony. One birthday morning, his father said to him, Out on the lawn you will find your birthday present. And there stood a beautiful bay pony with four white feet and a white nose. Billy had never been so happy. Equally heartwarming are the animal stories found in James Harriet's Treasury for Children. His story, Bonnie's Big Day, was published in 1972 and warmly shares the tale of gruff farmer John Skipton and his quiet affection for his aging horses. In this scene, we approach the horses who are enjoying their retirement down by the river. I saw the two horses standing in the shallows of the pebbly river. They were nose to tail and were rubbing their chins gently along each other's backs. Beyond them, a carpet of green turf ran up to a high sheltered ridge, while all around clumps of oak and beech blazed in the autumn sunshine. At the sound of the farmer's voice, the two big horses came trotting up from the river. They were fine big cart horses, but I could see they were old from the sprinkling of white hairs on their faces. Despite their age, however, they pranced around old John, stamping their enormous feet, throwing their heads about, and pushing the farmer's cap over his eyes with their muzzles. Now, if you're up for a more brisk horse adventure, have I got a flashback for you. One of our favorite family movies growing up was the 1982 film The Man from Snowy River, which was based on an 1890 ballad by Australian poet Banjo Patterson. In the following stanza from this ballad, Clancy is trying to convince the other riders that this new arrival, this man from Snowy River, is up to the task of tracking the horse that got away. He hails from Snowy River, up by Kosciuszko's side, where the hills are twice as steep and twice as rough, where a horse's hoofs strike firelight from the flint stones every stride, the man that holds his own is good enough. And the snowy river riders on the mountains make their home, where the river runs those giant hills between. I have seen full many horsemen since I first commenced to roam, but nowhere yet such horsemen have I seen. If you've seen the movie, it's likely you can recall Jim Craig soaring down the steep mountainside, nearly vertical, where no other rider dared go. And the soundtrack? It gives me chills every time. I happen to have the sheet music for Jessica's theme, 
So let's take a moment to imagine that we are gathered around the piano in the Idlewild Cottage Parlor, where we might listen to the lovely, evocative strains of this song. I'll include a link in the show notes so you can do just that. A farm-style tea may be best suited to this occasion, so as we pour out a hearty Irish breakfast tea, we'll pass around fluffy biscuits with fresh apple butter. This hearty tea brings us to our next literary moment, Taming the Colt, from Chapter 16 of Little Men by Louisa May Alcott. As much as Dan loves Plumfield, he is a restless lad. The diversion of a frisky horse and its ultimate taming proves to be the ideal challenge for this boy. A fine young horse of Mr. Lorry's was kept at Plumfield that summer running loose in a large pasture across the brook. The boys were all interested in the handsome, spirited creature, and for a time were fond of watching him gallop and frisk with his plumy tail flying and his handsome head in the air. But they soon got tired of it and left Prince Charlie to himself. All but Dan. He never tired of looking at the horse and seldom failed to visit him each day with a lump of sugar, a bit of bread or an apple to make him welcome. Charlie was grateful, accepted his friendship, and the two loved one another as if they felt some tie between them, inexplicable but strong. Another young man who longs to form a connection with horses is likely no stranger to you, eight-year-old Almanzo Wilder, as described in Farmer Boy. In Chapter 2, we join Almanzo as he heads to the barn for his after-school chores. Almanzo always went through the horse barn's little door. He loved horses. There they stood in their roomy box stalls, clean and sleek and gleaming brown, with long black manes and tails. The wise, sedate workhorses placidly munched hay. The three-year-olds put their noses together across the bars. They seemed to whisper together. Then softly their nostrils whooshed along one another's necks. One pretended to bite, and they squealed and whirled and kicked in play. The old horses turned their heads and looked like grandmothers at the young ones. They all knew Almanzo. Their ears pricked up, and their eyes shone softly when they saw him. Six years after riding Farmer Boy... Laura Ingalls Wilder wrote of her first horseback ride. We'll open the pages of By the Shores of Silver Lake to join 12-year-old Laura and her cousin Lena. Laura stepped onto Lena's hand. She scrambled up the warm, slippery-moving mass of pony while Lena boosted. Then she got one leg over the pony's back and everything began moving rapidly. Dimly, she heard Lena saying, Hang on to his mane! She was holding on to the pony's mane. She was hanging on to deep handfuls of it with all her might, and her elbows and her knees were holding on to the pony, but she was jolting so that she couldn't think. Then everything smoothed into the smoothest rippling motion. This motion went through the pony and through Laura and kept them sailing over waves in rushing air. She and the pony were going too fast, but they were going like music, and nothing could happen to her until the music stopped. 
the prolific Western author Zane Gray naturally sweeps us into numerous thrilling horseback rides, including the chilly autumn race shared by Helen and Dale in the 1920 book The Man of the Forest. With Ranger's first jump, Helen's blood began to run. Out he shot, his lean, dark head beside Dale's horse. The wild park lay clear and bright in the moonlight with strange silvery radiance on the grass. Half a mile of rapid riding burned out the cold, and all seemed glorious. The sailing moon, white in a dark blue sky, the white passionless stars so solemn so far away, the beckoning fringe of forest land at once mysterious and friendly, and the fleet horses running with soft, rhythmic thuds over the grass, leaping the ditches and the hollows, making the bitter wind sting and cut. In Helen, it was this swift ride, the horses neck and neck, and all the wildness and beauty that completed the slow, insidious work of years. The tears of excitement froze on her cheeks, and her heart heaved full. All that pertained to this night got into her blood. This wild beauty brings us to our closing passage today, which finds us in the book of Psalms. In chapter 8, we see the privilege and responsibility given mankind to care for all of creation. O Lord, our Lord, your greatness is seen in all the world. What are mere mortals that you care for them? Yet you crowned them with glory and honor. You placed them over all creation sheep and cattle and the wild animals too. O Lord, our Lord, your greatness is seen in all the world. Kindred spirits, would God's greatness inspire in us a spirit of joy and delight whenever we next see the flowing mane of a mare, the racing strength of a stallion, or the dear wobbly legs of a foal. Thank you for joining me today, dear ones. Please come again soon to Idlewild Cottage.